Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Amen. Uh, for sake of those watching online, my name is Danny and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you guys are here. Let me just say something about the prayer I just uh, prayed. When I say things like we're so happy and we're so willing, please understand that if you're not happy and you're not willing, that's okay. If you're sort of like, mm, I'm annoyed to be here, but I'm here, uh, that's okay. Your prayer should be, I'm annoyed to be here. Your prayer should be, I'm frustrated to be here. Your prayer should be whatever you are and how you are. I'm happy to be here because I'm enjoying this work that God is doing in my life and my marriage and my story and with you. And so that's what I pray, but... Never think that, that whoever's praying publicly, that uh, if they don't represent you perfectly, that somehow you're not where you should be. It's really important that you recognize that uh, we can all be praying different things and all be just as uh, correct or appropriate in our prayers. And uh, God appreciates that when we are true to ourselves and what it is we're dealing with. So if you came in with some stuff, welcome. You're in the right room. <laughs> Because this is the place of people who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. Let me show you the process that we've been walking through as people who don't know what we're doing. This idea of inspiration is, is really not just something that happens and you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. It's supposed to move you. When it comes to spiritual things, oftentimes it starts with life-changing awareness. You become, like, awakened. God is real. Uh, I should do something about it. And so you start to learn as a disciple then you start to serve, and then generally speaking, you hit some sort of wall where somebody disappoints you, somebody frustrates you, the church isn't what you thought, the pastor's not what you thought, and I'm out. And so you bail, right, and you, you, you leave, and then God pursues you, and through a podcast or a book or a bumper sticker or a coffee or a conversation or some, any, any kind of thing, God suddenly inspires you once again into your own awareness. And you're like, man, I got to get back into church. I got to get back into a relationship with him. And so you start to learn, you start to serve, and then oftentimes it happens again. But this time you're at least inspired to push through this wall, I hope, based on last week, and start your journey inward. Last week we talked about what it meant to be emotionally present, to not censor your feelings, to be okay inwardly being as you are. This is why I'm consistently speaking over you like I did just a second ago. Hey, if you're not where I'm at, that's okay. You be where you're at because those are your emotions, your experiences, and they are valid. Now, those things probably shouldn't be what steers you, okay? You should, that's not your steering wheel. They're more like warning lights on your dash. You're running a little hot, okay? But they should tell you, you might want to take an exit soon. They should tell you you may need to go see someone, okay, uh, an emotional mechanic, uh, a counselor, a, a pastor, somebody who's going to speak into your world. You understand? That's what this journey inward is all about. It's, it's this whole idea that you are aware of how you are built. Quick example. I figured out uh, a few years ago that I am a... Uh, I'm a physical touch person, so I'm a handshaker, I'm a hugger. I got a, I got a guy uh, from another country who comes in. I don't think George is here, is he? That was last service. He comes in, kisses me on both cheeks every time, messes up my glasses. Doesn't bother me at all, right? But I've learned recently that I have a limit to the level of hugging I'm interested in with some of you. <laughs> now, you, let me, Listen, my feelings are my feelings, okay? 
And I taught this to the church a few years ago because I started to realize that people were like, wow, Danny's really engaging. And like, I can hug him and I can, I can you know, I, we, can, we can connect that way. And then I started feeling like, why is this feeling not good anymore? And so I drew a line in the sand and I told the whole church, and I'll tell you right now, you can hug me if you want, but anything over three seconds is a cuddle, okay? <laughs> it just is. Try it. Go up and just, oh, man, good to see you. One, two, three. And then just hold on to somebody. And they go, ah. Uh, uh, and it's like, ah. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to cuddle with everybody in the room. I'm not that much. But, but I knew this about myself, and so I was able to share it, and, and the audience respected it, and I haven't been cuddled, you know, but only once a month with a new person who doesn't know. Yeah. So it's important for you to, to understand how you're made and why and be able to put words to it because it creates an environment that, that you feel like you can be in. Now, I know people who don't hug at all, and when I figure that out, I don't walk up and force my my way of being on them. I recognize their handshaker, they're this, they're that. I, I don't generally introduce myself with hugs, but I recognize that there are people that their inward story, they don't even know why they like it or don't like it. That's why the work of doing something inwardly is so very important. Now, this week, we're gonna talk about putting all this into practice and actually journeying outward. Actually, now, now moving back out into the world and able to interact with it in a way that is healthy and true to the things that we have been inspired in our lives, to the things that we've been awakened to, to the things we've learned, to the way we serve, to the struggles that we constantly deal with. For walls don't just go away. They pop back up. They, they show back up. They, they, just, they just happen. And we will honor the emotional inward journey as well. When all that lines up, then we begin this inward journey. Once you've passed through the wall and the intense inner journey necessary to experience your feelings without censoring them, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna begin to once again move outward into a life of doing, and you may, not, you may do this stuff in the exact same way you did it before. You may start serving at church, you may help, you may teach. You'll move back out into your life, and it's not as if you grew suddenly wings and you went from walking to flying. That's not how it works. You're just doing things in a different way. You're hugging, recognizing, hey, three seconds is about all I got in me. You're not just suddenly not hugging or suddenly saying, well, how I feel doesn't matter. I'll hug as long as you want to hug. You're recognizing how you're built and you're getting back out there to do something. The difference is, is that now, because of your awareness, now because of your transformational process is what the Bible calls it, calls it you can live this way out of a new and grounded center of yourself in God. The guy who writes a lot of this material that we've uh, been going through, that this whole thing is in, is the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book, Peter Scazzario. This is what he said. He said, a byproduct of experiencing and accepting your own feelings is that we rediscover God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. This is because God is the one who designed you to be how you are. And when suddenly you line up with how God designed you to be, and you're not fighting how God designed you to be, whether it's uh, kind of reclusive, whether it's boisterous, whether it's, it's active, whether it's sort of someone who's a watcher, whatever it is, all those things are designed by God. And when you line up with how God designed you, then in a very real way, you line up with God. You're no longer fighting things that don't feel right. You're suddenly present. And when you're present and when you're aware you get to experience more and more of God who is the ultimate presence 
and the ultimate awareness. A deep inner stillness will begin to characterize who you are. This is a profound thing to sit at the table with somebody who has this because no matter what you say, they're kind of inoffendable. Right? You're like, I'm going to tell you how I think, and they're like, okay. There's just a depth and a stillness to who they are because they know they've been through the storms. They, they understand what it means to both survive them and die in them, and either way, they know God's in control. And so there's a beautiful place that these people live. And this is when, and this is the point of this message, this point that you begin to feel these feelings, you begin to not be caught up in the drama, the Facebook posts don't matter, the stuff at work just doesn't impact you, you're like, what's going on? I'm just, I just don't, these are not things that, that, that elicit the same level of response or worry. That's when you begin to realize that you don't fit in the world around you as well as you used to, because you start living for what the Bible calls not this kingdom, but another one. You start living under a different reign, a different set of rules. You start caring about different things. You become almost alien in a beautiful, healthy way. People say things like, can't you believe? And you're like, no, I bet they're going through hard times. Yeah, but they said this about you. Well, they don't know me that well. Like, I, these are actual conversations I've had with mentors of mine that I'm like, so-and-so said that, me, I actually told a guy once, so-and-so said that he doesn't think you'd be a good mentor for me. And he's like, he could be right. I was like, but does he have something against you? Ah, Danny, we're not here to talk about him. Tell me how I can help you, and if I can, I will, and if I can't, I won't. Like, what is happening? <laughs> because they've accepted the fact that they have taken this journey outward, and it comes from this place of depth within their life. The thing that feels so odd is that you no longer live like everybody else, and this is how most other people live, and I think this is a great Pete Scazzario illustration of how the rest of the world lives or how many of us still in this process might feel or experience life and that is that most people live in a blizzard in his book a hidden wholeness parker palmer relates a story about farmers in the midwest who would prepare for blizzards by tying a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn as a guide to ensure them they could return safely home these blizzards would come quickly and fiercely and they were highly dangerous when their full force was blowing, a farmer could not see the end of his or her hands. And so they would tie a rope from one door to the next. If they lost their grip on the rope, it could become impossible for them to find their way home. It's reported that some froze within feet of their own front door, never realizing how close they were to safety. Most of us have lost our way, and many in the world, spiritually in the whiteout that comes with the blizzard of doing. They have confused this depth of being with God with instead the fruit, and this is often the churchy word they like to use, of doing things for God on behalf of God, and if they're not careful, as God. And so people begin to measure, well, how big's your church? How many people have you saved last year? How many people in Bible study do you read, do you, do you lead? How many verses have you memorized? How many, how many, how many, how many, how many? And they're all about doing because they're basically taking the way the world works, which is a world of doing, a world of, of, of accomplishments, a world of measuring people's uh, value dependent on how much they can accomplish with their single life. That it taken that way of being and thinking, and they've added it to the spiritual realm. And so they haven't really transformed. They've just uh, exchanged. Nothing's really new in their life. They're just saying, I don't care about money anymore. I don't, the word, it's not about money or stuff or big houses. 
But our pastor, you heard about our free building, right? I mean, isn't that pretty awesome? And, and we just launched 18 Bible studies. And it's all the same language, just hidden in a different way. And I'm like, wait, how are, like, Church Street and Wall Street shouldn't sound that much alike to me. But they do. They often do. I run in this circle. And it's a confusing conversation. It's usually about three questions before someone asks how big my church is. About three questions. How are you? How long have you been doing this? How many people are in your church? And depending on what I say, because I don't always tell the truth, because I'm tired of the questions, I'm like, oh, four, you know, mm. <laughs> rough. <laughs> 22 years and I'm up to four people. I'm just doing the best I can, right? And, and <laughs> depending on what actually I say, is, is they will respond to their level of respect. And, and suddenly my value increases or diminishes. And so they've not, they've not gotten beyond the game. They've just drugged the game into the chapel. Blizzards, they happen. They happen when we say yes to too many things, generally. When we worry about what other people think, and so we decide to do that instead of the right thing and stay home. A bunch of people asked me what my wife and I did for Valentine's Day, and my wife wanted to do nothing but go home, uh, start a fire in our wood stove, and just be together. And I was like, that's boring. Like, I said that out loud. I was like, that doesn't sound like something. Like, I told her three days in a row, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble Saturday morning after Valentine's Day because I didn't put together a thing for you. And she's like, why? And I was like, I don't know, because I like to win. That's why. <laughs> like, I'm like, like I want, it's true. It's just me. I'm like, mm, let's accomplish something. And she's like, no, nah, let's, just, let's just be. And, and she was right, and it was a great night. And, and it doesn't come naturally to me, and I don't think it comes naturally to a lot of people. We overschedule. We don't say no very often, and so any sense of rhythm in our daily, weekly, and yearly lives gets swallowed up in the blizzard of our doing. This becomes eventually exactly how we think we're supposed to live our lives, journeying outward in and with the world, and frankly, it's all just blindness. We're just gripping through the snow the best we can. We're not following a path. We're not following a source. We don't even know where we're going. We're just trying to keep moving so we don't die in the cold. This speaks to the inadequacy of our present spiritual ropes. And a lot of this is the church's fault. We teach young Christians specifically who are eager to develop in their relationships with God to have devotions or quiet time as their first line of defense. These normally consist of 10 to 30 minutes a day spent reading the Bible, praying, and perhaps reading something from a devotional book, along with, of course, going to church on Sundays and perhaps involving uh, yourself in a small group. We hope this will enable them to withstand the blizzard, and I'm just here to tell you, it will not. I do the best I can to minimize myself in people's spiritual lives. Now, I understand that, that there's a role I play, but it's only a role. And that's why I often say, question what I say. You don't know how my week's gone. I could have went off the rails on a Wednesday, and I don't tell you till next week. And this whole sermon could be sideways. This is why you and the Holy Spirit get to have your own relationship with God. I had a lady that I hadn't seen in like six weeks come to church maybe a month ago, and I saw her, and I said, oh, good to see you, appropriate three-second hug. <laughs> and then she didn't let go. But she wasn't cuddling, she was emotional. And so I sat there, and I said, hey, what's going on? And she said, I just need to apologize to you. And I said, why? And she goes, I haven't been to church in six weeks. She, she had real tears coming down her face. And I said, oh, you don't have to worry about that. I am so good at what I do that just hearing me one time is good enough for eight weeks. 
And she laughed, and I said, are you serious right now? Like, this is not, your faith is more than coming to listen to me. You got to be with God where you are. And, and I think she got that, and I was able to kind of ease the tension. But, it, but it's not about here. It's about there. We come here to, to find healing. We come here to find connection. We come here to be challenged or get frustrated. All those things are my job. That's what I do. Okay, and, and I love that, and I love when we bring new Christians, because let's be honest, there's people in the room right now, you don't even believe in Christ, you're just here on a spiritual journey, you don't know why you're here, and I love that as well. So I like new Christians, non-Christians, atheists, active people against us, I'll take it all. It doesn't bother me, because I don't play a role that critical in your life. The Holy Spirit has the job to transform you, not me, and frankly, not your Bible study, not your small group leader, and not really anything that you can go and self-resource. The Holy Spirit is creative and active and knows you. And he builds a spiritual menu that is full of all the right things to get you to the place where you need to be in order to be spiritually nourished. You might think you need this, and he's like, yeah, that's going to distract you down the road. I'm going to give you this. You might think you need that, and he's going to go, ah, that's, what, uh. that's why I've said before, some of you aren't even supposed to be in this church. You're in the wrong church. You need to go to a church where you can have your needs met or where you can serve in a different way that we don't offer. Kesed isn't going to do all the things that are available in churches to do. We're going to do what God's built us to do, and we're not going to apologize. And it'll probably be like seven things, and we'll do them really well, and we'll be really good stewards of it. But as God develops us, he'll tell us when it's time. Because like you are a body, and I am a body, we are one body. And there is only so many things that a body is supposed to do. What if I told you every person in this room was supposed to sing in order to worship God? You better get on stage, put a mic on, and practice with all you got. Fifteen of you would go, awesome. Another fifteen of you shouldn't, but would go, awesome. <laughs> but you shouldn't. Because somewhere in your mind, that's worship to you. It can't be sitting in the back. The rest of you would go, oh, I guess I'm not, guess I'm not worthy. This is what happens in churches. We go, oh, we got to do that. We got to do that. Did you hear about my sister's church? She's doing that. And I'm like, that's awesome for that body. But we're going to do how God has built us because we are just a, a macrocosm of you and yourself, which is a microcosm. We are the body of Christ, all of us individually and together. And it's our job to serve accordingly to how the Holy Spirit leads us. And oftentimes, it's not in the things that we think it is. Not even sometimes church on Sundays. Instead, what we need is a rope. A rope that consistently leads us back to God, to a place that is centered and rooted in Him, and so finds salvation and rest. And this is not just Danny's idea. This is not just tradition, although I'm going to give you one towards the end of the service, a tradition. I'm going to teach it to you that has been around a long time. But it all comes from the Bible. It all comes from his word. The story I want to use, and there's many, to illustrate this concept that God wants to give you a rope to pull you through the blizzards emotionally, spiritually, physically in your life, is the story of Elijah. Elijah was a man who had all the church tools, okay? He had all the quiet times. He had all the Bible studies. He had a great church full of lots of people. In today's terms, he did great things. At one point, he even called fire from heaven to eliminate the enemies of God. How amazing is that? But Elijah, like all of us, got caught up in the wrong things. And so he got a letter. The letter was from the reigning queen. She said, I'm going to come and kill you because you killed these people. Now, I joke all the time that if Elijah was in his right mind, he'd just ask God where she is and call fire down upon her bathroom, right? Just, who else wants to send me a letter? Like, that's the kind of stuff that I, 
But Elijah didn't do that. He became consumed with his world. He got caught in the whiteout of what happens when you, when you lose track of who you are. And so he decides that he's no more used to God and he runs out into the desert. And he doesn't run out into the desert so God will provide. This man runs out into the desert to kill himself. He goes from calling down fire from heaven to trying to commit suicide. So those of you who have experienced the highs and the lows in this world, welcome to most people in the Bible. Stop saying that if you've ever been that low, clearly God wasn't, you know, clearly. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like these, this is, this is, this book, I don't have a ton of time for this, but this book, listen. <laughs> listen, this book is not supposed to be, a read, be read as examples of everyone's life and how well they lived it. In many ways, this book is an example of how not to live your life. This book is an example of someone like Elijah who can call fire from heaven, and three weeks later, we think, try to commit suicide. Stop thinking that this book is full of people who did it better than you, because this book is just full of people just like you. And this is what we're learning about God, is he's saying, look at these people. Look at what I do inside each of their stories to bring me into the forefront and remove them from the blizzard that they're so lost in. The story of Elijah says that God came and nourished him, and then he goes, Elijah, get over there to that mountain. So Elijah was like, well, since I'm not dead, okay. And he went to the mountain. He found a cave, and he sheltered in the cave. And then this is what it said. Where is it? There it is. All right. <laughs> Verse 9, chapter 19 of 1 Kings. The Lord... Uh, told Elijah to go to the cave. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, this is the word of the Lord to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. He lists all his church stuff, all his degrees, all his wisdom, all his knowledge. Listen to him. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. There you go, God. That's why I'm here. And God said, okay. <laughs> He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Go out and stand at the, on, the, on the mount, on the foot of the, the mountain. Look out. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and it said, the original question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now here's something not a lot of people realize about this story. Elijah is a premier man of God, right? He's a prophet of the Lord. There's only like one of him every generation. But there's always one, it seems like, every generation, especially throughout the Bible. When God comes to speak to Elijah and he passes by the mouth of the cave, what you may or may not realize is that he comes as he has come to other men of the Lord and other people of the Lord before. He comes first uh, as a wind. This is how he came in Job. God came in a whirlwind, and he spoke to Job. And Elijah sees the wind thinking, all right, I'm like, Job, this is pretty legit. God's going to speak to me from a whirlwind, from a wind. Nothing. Next, it says there was an earthquake. And in the earthquake, God delivered the Ten Commandments to the people at Mount Sinai. So Elijah hears the earthquake, and he's like, oh, it's like the 
Ten Commandments, God's shaking the foundations of the earth. He's going to give me something profound, and then God's not in the earthquake. And then from there, there's, of course, the fire. And as you know, Moses was spoken to from a bush that burned with fire, and so Elijah sees the fire, and he thinks, this is awesome. I'm like, Moses, God is going to speak to me from fire, and then it says that there is no fire. He would have known each of these ways that God passed by, that God did not speak to him from. This is where I get my posture when I tell you church and Bible study and devotional and podcasts and all these things, they may be spiritual crutches for you, actually keeping you from hearing the still, small whisper of God's voice because you're so used to people telling you this is how God moves that you missed how God actually moves. It's it's personal and intimate, and it's very, very real. Now, the translation that most of us use is a still, small voice or a gentle whisper, but it's not actually the best translation of 1 Kings 19.12. The actual literal translation in Hebrew is that when God came to the mouth of the cave, Elijah heard him in a sound of sheer silence. Now, that's hard to explain, and so they said it, it had to be a whisper. It had to be a really small voice. When really... What God was doing was unwrapping things that already lived inside Elijah in the silence of Elijah finally stopping with open hands to go, God, I I know you're in the fire, but I don't see you. And I know you're in the wind, but I don't see you. And I know you're in the earthquakes, but I I don't see you. And then God's like, perfect. Because it's not your job to see me, Elijah. It's not your job to see God. It's God's job to see you. And so when you sit in silence, not doing, not caught in the blizzard of your own trying, then suddenly in the sound of sheer silence, you can smile and go, oh, okay. I'm just his child living my life. And he's weaving my story together. And I'm trying to see him and proclaim him and do all these things for him. And what you smell like is someone led the world who's trying to climb to that next mountain and get to that next thing. When instead, what you're supposed to smell like is someone like Moses who just walked out of the presence of God, didn't say a word, and was just glowing all over. He didn't preach any sermons, folks. He just looked at people and they went, whoo. Like, this is how God works, I'm telling you. It's what he does. Because he gets all the credit for the glowing. No, one, no one's like, Moses, turn that, turn that glowing off. They know it's not him. And God is not going to give you glory, not just because he doesn't want to share it, but because you won't survive it. You won't survive your doing. That's why the building downtown has to remain mystical and spiritual and, and, and magical, to use a, a worldly word, right? Because the more it's quality leadership led by quality people and Christians, unlike any of the other in this county, the more it becomes about us, the less it becomes about him. We need to glow just because we glow. And it's going to require us not wandering around in the desert telling everybody how to live, but instead finding him, finding that rope, and moving forward. It's often the silence after the chaos for Elijah and for us that is full of the presence of God. This is what I want to show you. This biblical example is pulled into a ritual, into a very uh, beautiful spiritual discipline, and it's called the daily office. Now, the daily office, for a lot of us, you're thinking, well, how does, how does that work? And I don't understand, is it, are you talking about my office at work? I'm a stay-at-home mom. I don't know how I can do this spiritual discipline. And that's not what it is. 
The day of the office is also called the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. And it's an ancient discipline going back thousands of hours. It comes out of that word office, which comes from the Latin word opus or work. I'll put this on the screen. The daily office is a time when you check in on the active works of God happening all around you. So the idea of the daily office is that you aren't calling God into your workplace. You're actually showing up at his. You're getting still for five minutes, seeing as God is everywhere at once. You don't have to show up in order to connect with him. But you're stopping. You're finding your cave entrance, wherever it is, and you're focused on it. Start off with once a day. Some people do it every three hours throughout the day where you sit quiet for even 15, 20 seconds, 60 seconds, and you ask God, okay, God, I'm here. What are you doing? Not, what can I do for you, Lord? Not, uh, can you fill me up, Lord, so I can go out and serve more people? Not, Lord, did you see so-and-so's really wrestling? I was wondering if you could take care of that. That is not the daily office. The daily office, right, or the liturgy of ours is sitting with God and recognizing he's already doing work. He's already in all the movements, and you're just simply cracking the door to hear the sound of the symphony he's playing. You're not teaching anybody any music. You're not bringing anybody with you. You're not getting any credit for your wisdom and your free tickets to get to the front row and hear the wisdom of God that no one else does. You're just cracking the door and listening to what he's doing and saying, okay, I'm in tempo with that. I'm in rhythm with that. This is the daily office. Let me just jump right into it. I want to tell you the four things just really shortly. The first one is stopping. Okay? You stop your activity and you pause to be with the living God. Central to the challenge of stopping is to trust that God is on the throne, he rules, and that you don't. That you give up control and trust God to run his world without you. Just stop. Just stop. Stop preaching. Stop learning. Stop teaching. Stop. Just put your hands up and go, God, if I never memorized another verse, I have a feeling you'll still get all the glory you want. You're that good at what you do. So stop. The next one is centering. Uh, the Psalms call us in Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Another one is be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10. God likes us to be still quite a bit. A better word for centering, I think, in today's terms is the idea of mindfulness. How many times have you driven to work and you don't know how you got there? Be honest. Like, you're like, I, I don't, what? I'm just, your body just took over. You let your mind wander. You're thinking about all the stuff your wife did. And oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And then you pull into work all of a sudden. This, this happens all the time because we are not centered. We are not mindful. We are not still enough to spend our time, even five minutes with God. Letting go of distractions, sensations, and resting in the love of who he is. The third one is silence and solitude. Dallas Willard called silence and solitude the two most radical disciplines of the Christian life. Here's a good definition of each. Solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things to attend to God. And silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. Again, these are practices you see throughout Scripture all the time. These are very, very difficult to do if you've not done them a long time. As a matter of fact, most studies say that people uh, can't stand 30 seconds of silence. 15, maybe. They just can't sit in it. It's too hard for them. And I think our church services would confirm that. Because me sitting silent sometimes, looking for a verse for three or four seconds, people go like, uh-oh, he broke himself. What's, what's happening? Even though what I'm really doing is praying, Holy Spirit, lead me to the pages. But you guys interrupt it, so I just do the best I can. Last one is Scripture. Scripture has served as the prayer book of the church through the centuries. 
This is because the Bible is a wonderful way to start learning how to stop and receive. Everybody likes to read the Bible in order to get a to-do. Oftentimes, if you read the Bible truly from that depth of your journey inward and outward, most of the time you're like, oh, I need to just stop. I need to just uh, center. I need to just sit in silence and solitude. This is what the Bible constantly pours us back into. And it's this idea that we are all in this together. We are all here. This is all part of our story. This is why scripture is always reminding us of grace, because we are all in this together, and you people frustrate me, and I frustrate you, and so the Bible, and so we must all frustrate God. There's no way that God could love me if I can't even get along with this woman I live with, and these kids that I, that I adore, and I, I can't understand it, and the Bible says grace over and over and over again. I like this quote. Grace tells us that there is nothing we can do or not do that would cause God to love us any more than he does right now. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to recognize the power and the movement of God. And so I have a proposition for you in closing. What if the reason some of you are so distant and far from God is because you are so routined in how God speaks to you. You, you? you see these things, the same that Elijah saw, right? You see the whirlwind, and you see the fire, and you see the earthquake, and you, again, this is how God speaks to you. But God is trying to hear your heart as you hear his heart. He's trying to meld with you. And so what if you are lost in the blizzard of good things, and what you're really supposed to do is find this place where you can just hear him, where you can take these daily office moments, and where you can say, okay, God, where do you want to show up in my life? And here's the best part about everything I just taught you. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it and ask the Holy Spirit to give you something else because I just gave you four daily offices, and there's like 50. These are what works for me. This is a sermon for me. Now, you can pick one or pick two, or maybe we're in the same place. But what if you said more than just, I'm going to do what Danny said at Kesed. What if instead you said, God, I'm going to meet with you at least daily for at least five minutes. I'm going to open the door, listen to the music, and I'm not going to expect fire or earthquakes, right, or wind. I'm just going to sit in the sound of sheer silence, and I'm going to present who I am to you. And you're going to see me, and I'm going to feel the grace of your eyes upon me as you see all the things I've done that I can't perform or get better or do more and I'm going to be loved by you and received by you and you and I we're going to be okay what if, what if that was the daily office that you had you see this is such an important part of our Christian faith one that I don't feel is taught very often that you may or may not know it, but we actually observe one quite often. We're going to today in just a minute, and it's communion. Communion isn't supposed to be something you do just because you do it. That's how God speaks to me. I take some bread and I take some juice. And No, you're supposed to take communion as a daily office, to sit in silence for a moment, to remember the cross of Christ and the blood that was shed so that you could be loved in the way that you need to be loved to remember the way in which he is ruthless about his hesed, motherly, stain-you-to-the-core kind of love. This is why we do this. And so today, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to have our communion folks come forward. They're going to pass it, and I'm going to ask that you don't take it, because what I want to do is give you an opportunity to, to actually experience a short daily office. I'm going to come back up, and then we are together going to pray and then sit for 30 seconds. 
in silence, letting God see us as we hold the memory of his son in our hands. And then we're going to take communion together as one family, believing that God can do all the things he wants to do with lives like ours. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We prepare for this moment of communion by just stilling our, our minds, our hearts. We thank you for the reality, God, that uh, you, have, uh, you have prepared this way in advance. You gave us this symbol a long time ago, knowing it would cause those of us in this room who are Christians to experience more and more of you. I also pray, Lord, in this room that those who have not accepted you as Christ, those that we, we love that are here, but they are on a spiritual journey, that perhaps, Lord, they would let this, this uh, communion tray go by, and instead they would just open their hands. They would be risky and ask, are you real? Are you there? Are you here? That they would sit in that 30 seconds of silence and see what happens. Thank you for the ways you minister to us, Lord, for the ways you connect with us. We lift this time to you now, this daily office, 